In the book of Job, it's written that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Well, in the deepest darkness of night in February 1979, the first sparks of the night of fires rose into the sky from coordinated strikes against seven police stations around Turin. The night of fires was nothing new. Since the raucous years 1977, it had been a relatively common tactic among the autonomia movement across Italy, particularly in the Veneto region. But the brazenness of these attacks, coming on the heels of the assassinations of Magistrate Emilio Alessandrini and Trade Union Delegate Guido Rosa, stunned the forces of order. Magistrates had been investigating autonomia for years, particularly in the area of the Veneto where the night of fires first spread, but the heat from this night would mark, in some ways, the structural collapse of Italy's constitutional order through the wave of arrests designed to persecute the revolutionary left and clamp down on social movements. The so-called Calogero theorem, which both came from and reinforced a kind of state of exception across the country, would obviously backfire significantly, only intensifying the violent, retaliatory actions against the state and its representatives. But to discuss and explore the Calogero theorem it's necessary first to go back to that night of fires in February 1979, the reasons that ignited it, and the frenzy of violence and death and suffering that fed it. Welcome to the Years of Lead Pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and I'm happy to announce that I've finally learned how to spell lead in English, I think. So, the last episode I got into the murder of Guido Rosa. And before that, Emilio Alessandrini. And these were two back-to-back killings of generally well-regarded figures across the left-right spectrum of Italian political life. Rosa worked in northern Italian factories from the age of 14 and rose to the position of union delegate in the Communist Party, representing those hard-bitted figures who shared the aspirations of workers' radical positions while also taking a practical position towards the compromises necessary for the party to rise beyond workers' agitation to a bigger, more powerful role in Italian politics. He represented a communist workers' movement increasingly at odds with the armed groups that hoped to lead it, and he signed his death warrant when he turned a Brigate Rosse propagandist into the cops. The brigades hadn't actually planned to murder Rosa, and the supposedly accidental killing stunned everyone, including the brigades. Alessandrini was killed just days later. A respected magistrate who had uncovered secret funding behind the coup plots during the early to middle 1970s, Alessandrini was taking a cautious approach to understanding the nebulas of the Italian radical left after 1977. He was killed by the armed group Prima Linea because they feared his investigatory prowess more than that of the police or the politicians. Both funerals, Alessandrini and Rosa, were attended by the former partisan president of Italy, Sandro Pertini, who wept at the sight of Rosa's coffin while more than a hundred thousand sang songs and chanted against the Brigate Rosse outside. It was a clear sign that the tide was turning in Italy, as the tumult of the late 1960s was no longer the clear origin point for the kind of violence carried out at the end of the 1970s. Whereas in the early years, the armed movement, groups like the Nuclei Armati Proletari from Napoli and the early efforts of Senza Tregua in Milan 
had been felt as emanations of the workers and subproletariat's justified frustration and outrage. But now, in the late 1970s, the Brigate Rosse and Prima Linea just seem to have become entities on their own, acting through their own internal logic without reference points in society. And in fact, they were increasingly self-referential, not only through their alienation from other mass-based groups and social movements, but also from their critiques of one another, which helped them define and articulate their small differences through which they could inhabit discrete niches more sectarian than useful. Well, it was certainly true that the Communist Party had contributed to the alienation process, right? So since the Fazzoletti Rossi, the red handkerchiefs in the Turin Fiat strike of 1973, the PCI had realized, also called the Pecei, had realized that the autonomous workers' movement within the factories made their own level of negotiations more difficult now especially by costing the members on their left flank who wanted more radical changes. So in a sense, they had come to compete with the extra-parliamentary left, and in their efforts to join the centrist parties in government, they needed to create more distance between them and the revolution, even if the revolution could prove a little bit useful in pushing the bosses to compromise. So, the Pechei became active partners in the counterterrorism work of the state, particularly within the factories. And this feud between the Communist Party and the Communist revolutionaries turned bloody with the killing of Rosa. And the party was now scrambling to find a way to react. They're furious, their hatred levels are very high, and in Turin, the Pechei activists decide to go back to basics. So what does that mean for a Marxist? The classical Marxist tradition has one thing that is basically seminal to how it approaches the world, and that thing is the worker's inquiry. Ever since the days of Marx himself, the essential thing for intellectuals and activists is to understand what the class wanted. What was most onerous about work? What kinds of demands could be formulated to improve conditions for organizing and solidarity? Now, a lot of other things define the various sects of Marxism today, but if you go back to the episode I did with Kevin Van Meter, he shows that the Italian workerists, from whose work much of the new left arose in Italy, were actually part of an extensive effort across the post-World War II left to understand the working class as autonomous from the party and union. So journals like Quaderni Rossi, Quaderni Piacentini, and other publications like La Classe, from which Potere Operaio came, they're all determined to issue workers' questionnaires to understand the subjectivity of the new mass worker and build workers' movements from below. So in a sense, a huge amount of the Italian new left comes from this movement of issuing questionnaires and understanding and describing the proletariat and the working class. And so this is what 23 communist neighborhood committees decided to do in Turin in collaboration with the municipal council and regional leadership. They decide to issue a questionnaire. Two weeks after the killing of Guido Rosa then, on February 15th, the questionnaire is formulated with the following questions. One, 
In your opinion, what are the causes of terrorism? Two, what are the obstacles to remove and the things to do to achieve not only moral isolation, but the disappearance of terrorism? Three, what should the institutions, central government, municipalities, provinces, regions, do? Four, can you report events that have occurred to you personally or to others in the neighborhood that fall under political crime, assaults, threats, intimidation, attacks, burning of cars and buildings? Five, do you have concrete facts to report that can help the bodies of the judiciary and the forces of order to identify those who commit attacks, thefts, assaults? And six, do you have any concrete proposals to make to improve the situation in your neighborhood. So they're going to distribute more than 100,000 copies to workers at the gates of Mirafiori and hopefully receive interesting feedback. The structure of the questionnaire is always going to be sublimely important, and in this case, it's clearly a counterterrorism questionnaire, with the extraordinary question number five being the real tipping point. The questionnaire is literally asking people to report terrorism and terrorists right there in the answer, asking people straightforwardly to immediately identify suspected terrorists and criminals. So, in a sense, it was like if the police sent out a mailer just asking people at random if they had any crimes they'd like to report. This is so brazen for a communist party-led initiative, because it confirmed deliberately the radical left accusations against the Pechei that they had simply taken up the head of the police state. So if Prima Linea had killed Alessandrini because they were afraid of his investigation, the Pechei's attempt here, I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. Something had to be done immediately in order to show the workers and everyone else that they weren't to be trifled with. They identified one district in particular as a center for questionnaire distribution, and they targeted its president, a Pechei activist named Michele Zafino. And they're going to kneecap him. The Rosa killing had shown that the gloves were now off, and the Communist Party was now locked in a blood vendetta with the armed party. So one of Prima Linea's leaders, Sergio Seggio, later recalled, quote, on the public level, the propaganda of the Communist Party attempted to give credence to the idea that the terrorists are small groups of provocateurs. On the concrete level, on the other hand, they knew perfectly well the extension reached by the phenomenon. A study by the party's Commission for State Problems the year before estimated, in addition to almost a thousand illegal immigrants, that's what they called their clandestine members, an area of active militancy and solidarity at around 10,000 people, a small army that was scary and that needed to be disrupted and resized. Turin, with the close and peculiar link between the party and the judiciary, was also, in this case, a privileged laboratory. The questionnaire was seen as a move capable of finally putting, if not on their knees, the armed organizations on the defensive. In truth, the armed groups were really already on the defensive. They were just having a difficult time admitting it to themselves, and the freefall into which they spiraled was really hard to climb out of. 
Their greatest enemy was no longer the fascist and Gaullist coup plotters, along with their connections to networks and positions of economic and political power. Now, it's the reformist Communist Party, and especially its links to the Christian Democrats and other authorities of the Italian center. So they almost just graft their whole critique of neo-Gaullism and the attack against the links to the state with the Christian Democrats and businesses over onto the left, and so now they're going to attack the connections between the Communist Party and the Christian Democrats and businesses and cops. So how did this happen? <laughs> they just graft their anti-right into an anti-communist position, uh, anti-communist party position. Um, well, besides the trajectories that I've already outlined, one answer can be seen in their defensive movement. They had failed to stabilize a mass consensus toward the armed struggle and protracted civil war, so they turned against the ones closest to them, who they blamed for their faltering efforts. Anyway, Prima Linea figures out that Zafino's basic itinerary leads him to eat breakfast at the Bar dell'Angelo on February 28th. So they'll be waiting for him. Two PL members enter the Bar dell'Angelo, Fabrizio Giai and Barbara Azzaroni. They wait for a bit for Zafino to come in, while Matteo Cajaggi is doing reconnaissance on the street to give warning of his arrival. After a spell, it's Kajaji's turn inside, and Jai goes outside to wait in the car and monitor the situation on Via Paolo Veronese, doing some circles around the block. So now, Matteo Kajaji comes in and he sits down with Barbara Azzaroni and orders breakfast, grabbing the telephone book on his way. The owner of Delangelo takes exception to this arrogance and effrontery of just grabbing the phone book without permission. So the two start squabbling. The argument becomes flamboyant. Kajeji tries to stay cool, just sitting with Azzaroni, making small talk. The two finish their meal. They go to the counter to pay when the cops come. Three police crews, to be precise. Somebody called the cops. Suddenly, two cops are pointing guns at Azzaroni and Kajeji, and there's simply no sign of the target, Zafino. Things have not gone well so far for the Prima Linea hit squad. Matteo Kajeji can't stand having a gun pointed at him, and he's already in a volatile temper. He pushes the cop's gun away, and the two start fighting. Another agent starts shooting a machine gun through the window at the Pialini, hitting Barbara immediately. Meanwhile, the cop breaks free of Kajaji and shoots him six times center mass. Jai recalled, quote, From a military point of view, it was a real execution. I personally witnessed the scene until the end. The policemen seemed drugged, perhaps from fear or tension. I was practically in their midst, but the agitation was such that they literally did not see me. My features were drawn and I had tears in my eyes. The fighting was over, and the two dead Prima Linea adherents lay on the ground. A search through Kajaji's pockets found a note containing the address of Judge Giancarlo Caselli, whom it was later determined had been their next target. Indeed, the PL's, quote, Operation Highway was set for the next month, but the action was precluded by Kajaji and Azzaroni's death. Interestingly, Caselli dodged another bullet, so to speak, because the Brigate Rosse had also had him within their crosshairs. 
That operation, nicknamed Operation P.O. Box because the BR man who was stalking him was a postman in his day job, was prevented by the fact that Caselli's armed escort was extremely prepared, to the point of driving in the back of the car on their knees, in front of the seats, with their faces pointed out of the window and machine guns at the ready. Anyway, back to the police killings of Prima Linea militants at the Bar dell'Angelo in Turin. The armed group is sort of thrown back on its heels. There's already been a number of internal disputes within the group regarding its organizational structure from those who, like Marco Donat-Catin, argued that the lower-tier squads had too much capacity for stochastic acts of violence. The killing of Kajaji and Azzeroni only made this internal tension more formidable because it brought the question of competence and reputation to a new level of seriousness. How's the group going to handle the publicity around the action? They release a press release saying, Yesterday, February 28th, Comrade Barbara Azzaroni, Carla, and Comrade Matteo Cajeggi, Charlie, fell in battle like communists, returning fire from 40 agents who arrived on the spot with the firm intention of killing. If the job of the agents is to kill and denounce, that of the revolutionaries is to identify them and hit them wherever they lurk. Against the armed troops of the state, there's only one word. War. The proletariat and our organization do not forget. Carla and Charlie's rifle didn't fall in vain. So this is a weird and sort of deceptive communique that pushes the blame onto the bar dell'Angelo, which falls into the typical trappings of rhetorical flourishes reminiscent of the BR statement on the death of Marika Gol. It does exhibit the fact that they were obviously very emotional and hurt by the deaths of their comrades, and 2,000 people attended the funeral of Barbara Azzaroni, showing the extent of open sympathies for the armed struggle. Perforce, only 12,676 questionnaires were ultimately returned to the Communist Party following the fatal altercation over their distribution. Just over 10% of the total amount published. Of that 10%, only 0.28%, just 35 responses, actually answered the critical question number five. That said, it's important to note that the response of Prima Linea was to dive even deeper into the abyss of bloodletting and murder, as they blamed the bar and the cops for killing their comrades. There's this idea that develops, it's going to involve Fabrizio Giai, who was there during the killings, as well as the key members of the leadership group, including one of the original members of Lotto Continuo's Corrente faction, Bruno Laronga, and his partner, Silvera Russo, along with Maurice Bignami and the partner of the woman who was killed, Barbara Azzaroni. The idea is that they're going to set this trap for the cops by going to a bottle bar in a pretty tough neighborhood and forcing an emergency call at gunpoint in order to lead police officers right into an ambush. By now, we all know we're working with a bunch of pros, so we can imagine that this is going to go super well. The action is planned for March the 9th. Binyami says to Kasimasima in the book Isoversivi, Quote, entering the bar, we immediately explained who we were and what we were going to do. 
Laronga telephoned the police posing as the owner, said he caught a guy trying to steal in the bar and come get him. Fabrizio G.I. explains, We occupied the bar, taking people to the back, explaining that they would have to witness a violent but short-lived shooting. So if they had remained lying on the ground without moving, nothing would have happened to them. Davide, armed with a pistol, stood at the counter as if he were a waiter. I, too, went behind the counter, hidden behind the coffee machine. I had a Sten and a P-38. Laronga had a pistol and Russo a Sten. For 40 minutes, we waited for the Panthers to arrive. The Panthers are the police units, the mobile police units. So what's, what's going to happen? A police officer arrives. And before he has a chance to say a word, he's hit with a shot. He turns around, leaves, and falls down right outside the doorway. There seems to be a few different diverging accounts here, but from what I gather, two more police burst into the bar, gunfight ensues, the cops back out, and the Pialini follow them into the street. Silveria Russo takes a shot that wasn't very carefully aimed, and the bullet hits her partner, Bruno Laronga. As Bruno is falling down, he pulls a wild bunch and tries to pop off a few shots in glorious fashion. Unfortunately, one of those bullets finds its way to a 19-year-old student who lived upstairs and was walking home from the Carlo Grassi Aeronautical Institute where he was taking classes. The student, Emanuele Urili, dies right there and then on the pavement having had nothing to do with anything that was going on. As one of the Pialini later reflected, quote, It was a military self-defeat of the organization, because we struck each other while the police fled without having scored a single hit. The level of fire was deadly. Of course, deadly to a random pedestrian 19-year-old guy. Meanwhile, the Pialini take La Ronga out of Turin, where... Any hospital would call the cops on him, and they bring him down to Milan using a truck flanked by some cars that they've stolen or have access to. And this simple task of w- moving a wounded man to a different city is translated through the jargon of armed struggle into a real military operation. Anyway, this time they're successful in removing their injured companion, but they continue to blame the Bar dell'Angelo for starting the whole disastrous sequence of events. Amid PL's attempt to do whatever it was that they were trying to do, pretty sure it had something to do with defending themselves against an intensifying judicial investigation by killing a popular left-wing magistrate, and then trying to head off the backlash by failing to ambush a Communist Party activist for distributing a survey. There was a parallel effort to prevent the distribution of the questionnaire. This was called the Night of Fire, which I mentioned in the open. This was an action in which seven police stations are attacked and burned in one night as a reprisal for their participation in the questionnaire distribution. Now, as I noted, the Night of Fire, nothing new, that's not a new tactic in the armed struggle, but this one showed a level of planning and strategic precision that contributed to the Great Repression that came down the following month on April 7th. So before I talk about that repression, I want to get into the Knights of Fire a bit more, because the tactic was really significant. Although the Night of Fires happened relative to the events transpiring in Turin, 
and to a lesser extent Milan, the Night of Fires were more the providence of the The Night of Fires were more the province of the Autonomia groups in the Veneto. The spread of the Night of Fires to Turin was in fact a signal to the magistrates that the Autonomia networks had become, or in fact always were, far more integrated and cohesive than they let on. So, the Night of Fires were the most common in Padua and, generally speaking, the region of Veneto. According to journalist Antonio Garzotto, it was fairly common for an autonomist to go around to other activists with the question, how many banks tonight? The group of activists would then go out, throw molotovs or set off bombs or incendiary devices, whatever, at half a dozen targets or so. Often, these targets would be professors that they deemed insufficiently radical, high school teachers deemed repressive or disciplinary, cops, of course, prisons... The range of targets is pretty predictable, right? Political offices, entrepreneurs and businessmen, real estate agencies, but also doctors and bookstores who would become class enemies in their minds. So, of course, for each target, they would have their reasons, and the actions would be broadcasted and propagandized through their media organs, which by 1979 included the journal Autonomia and the radio station Radio Sherwood. I've talked about the Autonomia groups in Veneto in the episode on the Assemblea Autonoma of Porto Marghera. Basically, it was the province of a lot of former Potere Operaio adherents and their supporters. Famously, Potere Operaio was the extra-parliamentary left-wing group that really did come out of that classical workerist theoretical corpus of the 1960s very close to the factory struggles in the petrochemical industry around Venice's Porto Marghera, the founders of POTOP distributed literature and held assemblies outside of factory gates advocating for wildcat strikes and various strategies and tactics that could outflank the unions and often bring pressure to bear on the bosses. Initially, POTOP had developed from La Classe, and the efforts of the Padua sociology professor Tony Negri, intellectual Sergio Bologna, and others who produced a heavily intellectualized and advanced theoretical conceptualization of the working class with a real egalitarian flair. Also involved early on were militants from the Roman student movement, Oreste Scalzone and Franco Piperno, who had a different understanding of what the organization should look like and do. Bologna was sort of pushed out as the group became focused on a Leninist model for a political party apparatus with a more rigid leadership structure. And with the increase in housing struggles and big protests, the organization increasingly came to adopt an insurrectionary position. As a refusal of work became Potop's main tagline, the vanguard intellectuals of Potop, who, despite the originality of their own thought, inherited their ideas from the late 50s and 60s, are sort of outpaced by the Roman insurrectionists. Meanwhile, the organization's security services produced a secret society called Illegal Work, run by the flamboyant Valerio Morucci, gaining connections to the subversive neo-partisan group The Gap, established by super-wealthy publisher Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli. 
In spite of the logistical support from the Gap, and vice versa, Potop's illegal work ended up splintering between a formal rejection of bank robbery and an informal section that robbed banks, pulled a crazy art heist, and did all sorts of weird stuff. In 1973, wannabe members of the informal work of Poterio Parayo set fire to the doorway of a section leader of the fascist party, the Movimento Sociale Italiano, in the Roman district of Primavale. But the fuel in the incendiary device looks like it leaked under the door, causing the whole apartment to go up in flames and leading to the death of his two sons. In the aftermath of the Primavale fire, the splits within Potop became more divisive, especially between the Romans, who wanted that Leninist insurrectionary party ready to overthrow the state on the one hand, and the Venetians around Tony Negri, who wanted more of an informal social movement that would be able to reckon with what they theorized as the expansion of capitalist control from the factories into everyday life. While Negri moved to Milan with his cohort in order to run a journal called Rosso, built around those sorts of ideas that saw the old mass worker as a new form of social worker, the Roman group around Scalzone, Morucci, and for a brief time Piperno, linked up with the Milanese security services of Lotto Continua to start the Senza Tregua area that would become Prima Linea. So both of these branches that extend from Potere Operaio into the burgeoning Milanese autonomia scene, whether Rosso under Negri and his faction, or Senza Tregua under Scalzone and Morucci, helped formulate the beginnings of autonomous thought in the mid-1970s, although the latter had a more tenuous and critical link to it. But it should be clear that the two branches are quite different, very critical of one another, and there was also personal beef between their leadership. Meanwhile, in the Veneto, the traditional stomping grounds of Potop at Porto Marghera had developed an autonomous workers' assembly to deal with problems of environmental pollution, safety hazards, and low pay. But around this Assemblea Autonoma of Porto Marghera, there's also a movement growing in the mid-70s, the, kind of the next generation, especially in the periphery of North Padua and around Venice, identified with the Collettivi Politici, or the political collectives, that Potop had attempted to develop during the final year of its existence. These collettivi politici were first advanced as a principle, perhaps, during the failed merger between the left-wing group Il Manifesto and Potop in Rome. And from that attempt to form a collettivo politico came the Roman autonomia group Collettivi Politici Operai, or the Political Workers' Collectives, which were meant to emerge in different work areas and organize militant agitation groups. So you get these autonomists from northeast Italy, who call themselves the Collettivi Politici Veneti, per il potere operaio, in the Veneto. They also had an infrastructure of social groups in the periphery called Gruppi Sociali, meant to organize revolutionary communities. This gets a little bit confusing now, because you have the Roman Collettivi Politici Operai, also called i Volsci, and then you have the Comitati Autonomi Operai, which ran the journal Rosso in Milan and now featured 
Tony Negri's leadership. And then you have the Collettivi Politici Veneti per il Potere Operaio in the Veneto, which was sort of the bastard child of both factions of Potop that continued to exist in its own distinct form after the divorce and was quite a bit younger in membership than the Assemblea Autonoma in Porto Marghera. So again, it should be clear that the CPV, the Collettivi Politici Veneti per il Potere Operaio, is distinct from the Roman and Milanese areas of autonomia, which both also contain factions that dispute with one another. <laughs> they all had similar things in common, right? They fought with the fascists, they carried out mass illegality, they called for and helped support the self-reduction from utility bills and rent increases. The Milanese CAO was more prone to countercultural positions, whereas the Milanese Senza Tregua and later Prima Linea positions were more factory-centric. The Roman area around CPO was not as factory-centric, but it also criticized the countercultural model and was maybe more libertarian than Senza Tregua, later Prima Linea. And they also tended to have more f- street fights with fascists in Rome, the CPV around the Veneto was more well-known for engaging in increasingly hierarchical and disciplined organizational strategy. According to Pietro Calogero, the magistrate who would soon bring down charges, the CPV used, quote, widespread terrorism, not as an end to itself, but the means by which we try to aggregate the masses around the political issues, repression, anti-fascism, illegal work, proposed to root them in the conviction of necessary rejection of legality and inevitable recourse to violence. In short, to form a true widespread awareness of the armed struggle. Now, Calogero's opinion should be taken with a grain of salt, but it was true that the CPV engaged in some mischief and shenanigans to orchestrate these efforts in a way that wouldn't link back to the loosely organized structure, activists in this area created a separate group called the Fronte Comunista Combatente, or the Communist Combatant Front. It's also translated some places as the Communist Fighting Front. Now, the Fronte Comunista Combatente was a rough group. Let's get that stated right here out in the open right away. They made their name in November 1976, setting off an incendiary device at the house of Giampaolo Mercanzin, the head of a group that managed the university canteens, trying to get a hold of the widespread self-reductions, occupations, and robberies going on. It wouldn't be their last act against Mercanzin. But I'll hold off on that for a minute. The first night of fires that I could track down came on February 3rd, 1977, in attacks spread out through Padua, Vincenza, and Verona. Practically every half hour, attacks took place throughout the evening, suggesting a fairly strong logistical and strategic coordination. The effort was spearheaded by the Fronte, which subsequently carried out similar actions the following month against law enforcement and jail infrastructure in Padua. Also in March 1977, you start to see actions in a similar vein of property damage from acronyms like Proletari Comunisti Organizzati and the Organizzazione Operaia per il Comunismo, both associated with the area of the CPV as well. 
The next month, in April 1977, came the real night of fires, though, as seven companies, cars, and homes around Padua province were burned by militants. In May 1977, the rioting in Bologna, Rome, Milan, and Turin got really intense. Not to be outdone, a demonstration is called in Padua that morning that would begin at Piazza dei Signori. The procession broke into two groups, tying up the whole police service. Then, autonomists struck at the neighborhood of Portello, catching the police off guard. Militants moved two buses and some cars into the streets and set them on fire, creating roadblocks, while others did some smash-and-grab and looting at a few shops. Reportedly, the rioters threw 200 Molotovs and fired some 70 shots, presumably at cops who eventually arrived on the scene. The courts found that, quote, the real objective was not the expropriation of shops and agencies, but to impose one's presence with violence to occupy a city center area, a nerve center of Padua, with weapons. Hold it with the same means, attacking things, putting people in danger, creating fear and dismay. Again, we have to take this interpretation with a grain of salt, but certainly the objective here may have indeed been something like conquest and control of the territory, armed defense of the territory, or one such similar slogan formulated by the porous border space between the armed struggle and the aut autonomist collettivi politici and gruppi sociali. The Fronte Comunista Combatente got back to the dirty business this year as well, kneecapping the judicial reporter Antonio Garzotto as he left his house on the morning of July 7th. If you recall, the movement of 1977 had this interesting conference on political repression at the end of September in Bologna, and here, the CPV folks lobbied for the formation of a kind of unified area of the autonomia, which they'd later envision as the Movimento Comunisto Organizzate, an organized communist movement, or MCO. But it didn't really go that well. However, there was some degree of cross-pollination that probably happened here, and there are a couple of crucial takeaways. On the one hand, I mentioned in one of the episodes on the 1977 movement that the communist brigades linked to Rosso kind of linked up at the conference with other militants from Senza Tregua and formed the Formazioni Comuniste Combatenti, or the Communist Combatant Formations, which had nothing to do with the Fronte Comunista Combatente, but did end up joining with Prima Linea during the first months of 1978 and splitting off another deadly organization later that year. More to the point, a couple months after the Conference on Repression, more Knights of Fires came down between the 12th and 13th of November, this time in Tuscany, from Pisa to Florence to Prato. Allegedly, these raids were carried out by the Unita Comuniste Combatenti, not the Fronte Comunista Combatenti or the Formazioni Comuniste Combatenti, but sort of in that vein. There's a huge difference, in case you're wondering. The Unita Comuniste Combatenti had derived from the Senza Tregua-linked area of Florence, kidnapping a meat merchant for self-financing in 1976 before doing a few attacks on important figures and academic targets and losing some of their members in 1977 to Prima Linea. Anyway, 
The night of fires in Tuscany in late 1977 might have shown that the tactic was spreading, and in the same month, back in the Veneto, 12 sites were hit in one night, mostly against small businessmen around the region. And you're probably wondering, why do they hate entrepreneurs so much? Well, the autonomous were very sensitive to businesses that used subproletarian labor force. The exploitation of low-wage workers was a big problem of the growing gig economy that was superseding the old factory model as factory workers became more organized and gained higher pay, leading industry to ramp up mechanization, break up the workday, increase informal occupation, and even begin leaving the peninsula for other countries in the global south. So, during this period, the underpaid subproletariat became a symbol of where the Italian economy was going for the radical left, and thus a viable target for militant actions. In January 1978, another night of fires hit a dozen targets around Padua comprising some Carabinieri stations and headquarters of the Christian Democrats. So by this point, it seems like the CPV-linked Fronte Comunista Compatente has inspired or helped inspire two similar groups in the area of autonomia close to Senza Tregua and Prima Linea called the Unita Comuniste Combatente and the Formazioni Comuniste Combatenti, with the former even gravitating towards the Knights of Fire tactic. 1978, as already mentioned, was a pretty intense year what with the Moro kidnapping and everything around it. But we see at the end of the year an organization of the Movimento Comunista Organizzate emerging in the Veneto alongside more Knights of Fire. Over the evening of the 18th of December that year, for instance, Schio industrial headquarters are hit, along with the headquarters of industrial associations and federations in Mestre, Vicenza, as well as the House of the Industrial Association president in Rovigo and that city's Artisans Association. There are also far more diffuse activities taking place, particularly around the universities. Of course, Negri had taught at the University of Padua, but was also splitting his time with Paris, where he was teaching in 1977 and 78 classes on Spinoza. Potopini had a presence in some universities during their heyday in the early 70s and would sometimes disrupt classes by left-wing lectures whose high-flown talks they found trite and contrary to the real workers' movement on the ground and in the streets. This pattern repeated itself in the schools of the late 1970s as activists burst into left-wing teachers' classes accusing them of refusing to talk about whatever was happening in the streets and settling for irrelevant crap about Dante or whatever. During the Moro kidnapping, students put up a big banner ridiculing a professor named Guido Peter by mocking one of Moro's letters from the BR's people prison, as if it was written by Peter. When Peter took the banner down, he was assaulted by students right there in the atrium of the university. After the Moro kidnapping, though, a lot of the CPV had a sit-down, or an assembly, rather, where students openly announced this choice. Either we're going to choose the Red Brigades, or we're going to choose the political collectives. That assembly, at least, went with the collectives, and this was seen as a movement away from the arrogance of armed struggle and towards a more ironic social dissent that was producing an anti-authoritarian platform against the state. But the armed groups 
were not finished with the movement. On October 20, 1978, the Fronte Comunista Combatente struck again, this time hitting Giampaolo Mercanzin again. The canteen manager was hit with three shots in his legs from a 7.65 caliber pistol which shattered his left tibia. By this time, it would be easy for many within the CPV to disavow the fronte, but that somehow didn't do much to sever the ties of sympathies that did have fairly deep roots by this point. In late 1978, the CPV created the journal Autonomia, known for its characteristic cartoons, which are sort of eerie and angry in a way, wry and sardonic, with a lot of very chaotic energy, but also artistically quite clever and dynamic. Autonomia and its sister radio station, Radio Sherwood, provided a platform to boost the militant actions happening around the Veneto, along with the political and social organizing taking place through the collectives and groups. It wouldn't be very long-lived, though. In early 1979, while Prima Linea and Brigate Rosse were basically entering this phase of becoming politically-oriented revenge-based murder gangs, Atanamio was beginning to converge with Rosso, which had entered its latest series as Rosso per il potere operaio. And according to Steve Wright's fun book on the publications of Autonomia, The Weight of the Printed Word, they'd grown more vanguardist and organizationalist during the late 70s. The merger here between the Milanese, Turinese, and Venetian Autonomia publications was complicated given the rise of hierarchical formulations after 1977 that all sort of pointed toward armed struggle. The idea, in a way, was that Autonomia was going to be a weekly struggle sheet, while Rosso per il Potero Braio was to be a kind of a monthly review for more intellectual engagement. But the latter was torn by contradictory ideas about how Autonomia Organizzata would really come about, and Autonomia itself had kind of dissolved into broad-based social movements after the seriousness and gravity of the Moro killing made it very difficult to embrace the sort of cheeky, radical chic that gave Autonomia its original edge. As the CPV and the Milanese CAO worked towards a complicated synthesis, the Knights of Fire seemed to be growing more generalized to the magistrates, and the threat from the armed groups appeared to spread to the magistrates and the Communist Party. It was enough that they had basically encircled themselves by picking fights with everyone outside the narrow class interests that they thought that they represented, but the appearance of organizational and strategic unification brought by the Knights of Fires and journalistic mergers was enough to draw the wrath of the judiciary that had been building up since the eruptions of 1977. And at last we come to April 7th. Arrest warrants are issued for 20 supposed terrorists, including Tony Negri, Oreste Scalzone, Franco Piperno, Luciano Ferrari Bravo, Emilio Vesce, and others. Pretty much all the main figures whose arrest was ordered during the April 7th case, as it became known, were veterans of the Paterio Braio experience, which really gave the group added mythology that it didn't really need. Potop did have this incredibly interesting kind of complex of ideas, but the magistrates developed this theory that it was fundamentally not just the intellectual, but the organizational basis for the armed party. 
In other words, the magistrates led by Pietro Calogero theorized that Potere Operaio had not dissolved in 1973 as its members had claimed, it had merely gone underground to formulate the ostensibly disorganized alphabet soup of armed organizations in order to elude the police. The charges declared that the accused had organized and direct quote organized and directed in association called the Red Brigades, constituted as an armed band with a paramilitary organization and supply of weapons, ammunition, and explosives in order to promote armed insurrection against the powers of the state and to violently change the constitution as the form of government. Not only was Tony Negri the leader of the zombie Potap organization, they claimed. But he was the leader of the Brigate Rosse, and it was he who placed the call to Moro's wife, Noretta, on April 30th, 1977, asking for a clear intervention in the favor of negotiations. The theorized phone call from Negri was apparently based on the intuition of the late Emilio Alessandrini, Calogero's associate, who Prima Linea had just killed a couple months before, and who had formulated this hypothesis after he overheard Negri's voice in a party in 1977. Now, I should just state right here that the phone call was actually from Mario Morucci himself. It wasn't, didn't have anything to do with Tony Negri, but I do have to say, I can understand how the weird genealogies and networks that emerged from Potop's 1973 split could be perceived as a continuous and overarching model, but frankly it was an utterly false conspiracy theory largely based on the testimony of a union organizer from Veneto who had participated in Potop back in the day named Antonio Romito. The immediate reaction from the CPV is to set off some new explosions. Unfortunately, however, on April 11th in Tiene, Vicenza, three militants from the Fronte Comunista Combatente, Maria Antonietta Verna, Angelo del Santo, and Alberto Graziani, were killed when their bomb exploded on accident. A fourth was arrested, Lorenzo Bortoli, and he would die from suicide in prison shortly after. A few days after this tragedy, a night of fire did happen, targeting Calagero's house with some gunshots, as well as the car of the counterterrorism police and the houses or cars of others involved. And a week after that, another night of fire in the Veneto region hit some 20 targets, including a lot of Carabinieri barracks. But the ferocious reprisals of the armed formation connected to the CPV did not stop the tide of repression. The reality is that Calogero's theorem cannot be reduced to the simplicity of an ongoing potop that controlled all of terrorism. Called the Calogero theorem, it involved a three-layer structure that involved pretty much all the operations happening from above and below ground. Calogero's theorem determined that, quote, the first level, the overt one, was dedicated to mass and widespread illegality, proletarian expropriation, self-reductions, occupations, fires, devastation, roadblocks, all that movement activity in schools and universities, attacks on teachers. The objective of these actions was to destabilize the institutional, economic, and social network of the territory, universities, schools, factories, financial and commercial centers, trade union bodies, political parties, and to give coverage, resonance, and support 
to the terrorist actions carried out by two other levels. In the Veneto, there were 500 attacks in three years. Each of these contributed to creating the institutional disruption that should have led to an exhausting civil war with the aim of imploding the state by suffocating its fundamental institutions. So, we don't get any sense of other groups in the triplice of uh, Lota Continua, Avanguardia Operaia, and Il Manifesto here, which certainly had engaged in above-ground illegalism to varying degrees. Potop is, like, saddled with everything. All the mass illegalism of the 1970s carried out in various forms to different degrees across social sectors with contradictory rationales and determinants tied to economic conditions and cultural conflicts. It really was a sort of a McCarthyite phenomenon, if you haven't picked that up yet. And what of the second level? The second level, semi-clandestine, operated mainly under the acronyms Organized Communist Proletarians and Workers' Organization for Communism. The militants of this level hit the same objects as the first, but with real attacks. They used weapons, explosive devices, and incendiary devices. These violent attacks were always aimed against things, never against people. Intimidating gestures, not attacks on physical integrity. Knights of Fires and urban guerrillas were also organized at this level. The militants could sense, but they knew nothing about the higher level. Now, this is almost true in a way because the Proletari Comunisti Organizzati and the Organizzazione Operaia per il Comunismo were real acronyms that were taken up by squads associated with the CPV that would go around and do property crimes against factories and so on. But as far as I can tell, these acronyms never extended really that far beyond the Veneto, really, and they weren't particularly generalized beyond the basic tactics and broader strategy being deployed. The CPV also had an associated group called the Ronda Proletaria, which sounds a lot like something to do with Senza Tregua, but the two groups were quite distinct and not really connected. The third level in the armed structure, headed by the zombie Potop, was the clandestine one, according to the Calogero theorem. This is where the Fronte Comunista Combatente would be, and it would be charged more with physical assaults, kneecappings, etc. The militants, Calogero declares, were covered by nom de guerre, just like the Red Brigades. They practiced terrorism and armed struggle according to the deliberate strategy of attack against men who were symbols of the institutional, economic, and social fabric, mainly using firearms. The members of this third level had periodic meetings with representatives of other armed and clandestine groups in the same territory to advance a single combatant perspective. It is this idea of the cumulative struggles of the armed party theorized by Tony Negri since 1973. Here we get the dreaded Fronte Comunista Combatente again. But as I showed, in 1978, the autonomous political collectives had made a good-faith effort to break with the armed front, even if the public attempt wasn't as thorough as it could have been. That said, perhaps it couldn't have been as thorough as one might expect, since the nature of diffuse political collectives is not to be able to impose on any given entity within the network and any number of those entities might have contained or supported Fronte militants. 
So this is part of where the diffuse nature of autonomia would actually work against its adherents when they wanted to decisively cut their ties with armed struggle, because armed struggle didn't really want to cut its ties with them. And it's true that a lot of the basic strategic and tactical stuff going on with the CPV had been a continuation of the Potop experience and the evolution of its different factions after its breakup. In particular, it would have been the insurrectionist faction and the seeds that it sowed. But, as we saw, there's also the hybridization of Autonomia with Rosso and the Negri group's idea of the social worker. So again, it's complicated. I'll leave the last words with former Potop leader Oreste Scalzone, who then had gone on to co-found the Senza Tregua area, and from there, the Cocori. Scalzone actually admitted guilt and responsibility in some robberies and woundings, and he noted from his French exile that, quote, Calogero and others erred excessively, but also by default. The conspiracy, the overarching terrorism that pulls the strings of all the acronyms with Tony Negri in the role of the grand old man, was a conspiracy phantom, and therefore an excess. But, the existence of a social tumult that we were trying to organize, the theorization of the armed struggle, even if different from that practiced by the Red Brigades, including crimes such as robberies and kneecappings, were all true. Ah, but I would be remiss to leave out the final play in Prima Linea's destructive barroom drama, because that brought us from the carnage of January 1979 into the arrest of April. The failed ambush against the police had not slaked their thirst for revenge, and the armed group still bitterly blamed the owner of the Delangelo bar for calling the cops. They'd heard that he was the culprit through the grapevine. No, literally, a 15-year-old girl who overheard her carabinieri father saying that the owner of the bar had called the cops did the game of telephone and the word got to the PL patrol, which then told the leadership. So, they find out who the owner of the bar is, and on the evening of July 18th, just about 6 o'clock, they lie in wait for the owner to return. There's Maurice Bignami again, Roberto Sandolo, Michele Viscardi, Marco Donatcatin, and once again, Fabrizio Giai, who was in the previous two debacles. Well, the bar owner, Carmine Civitate, comes up after delivering something or other. He's about to enter the bar, but he never made it in. He's shot six times in the head and in the chest by Prima Linea. It was a clear case of revenge, and PL submitted their claim to the news service ANSA. Prima Linea here, we killed the executioner Villardi. Villardi? What can we say? Oops! So, Ricardo Villardi had run the bar through January, but after the fracas, he sold the joint to Civitate. PL had shot the new owner, not the old one who they thought had called the police during the dispute with the hit squad in January. Carmine was a Calabrian who migrated north as a kid and worked transporting fiat cars before buying the bar as an investment for his two kids, Roberto and Gianluca, five and four years old, respectively. The day he was murdered, 
He'd just finished his duties and he was about to go celebrate his 38th birthday. But wait, it gets worse. Once the Pialini had realized their mistake, they could have admitted it and just dealt with the embarrassment. Oh no, of course they didn't do that. They simply released a second communique declaring, A fire group of the communist organization, Prima Linea, has executed the spy and informer Carmine Civitate, co-responsible for the ambush and premeditated killing of comrades Barbara Azzaroni, Carla, and Matteo Cagegi, Charlie. This was ridiculous, because Civitate had nothing to do with anything, and they must have known that. What they didn't know... Indeed, what they couldn't have known was that the phone call to the police had been placed not by Villardi at all, much less Civitate. In fact, it was placed by the nearby tobacconist who was suspicious of the circling car. The senseless killing of Civitate, father of two, based on a 15-year-old girl's rumor and the most superficial investigation imaginable, would not bring back the dead Pialini. But it would give a lot of people more reason to absolutely loathe the death spiral of the armed struggle. And that, in turn, would bring more people, if not to support the apparatus of state repression, than to stand by as its coils tightened around the extra-parliamentary left in its grip. So, that's it for today, folks. Thanks very much for listening. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod.